We are actually here at Money 2020 Amsterdam to bring you Blockchain Insider and we are live. That's amazing. I'm your host, Simon Taylor, and I'm joined by some incredible guests today. Uh, first up, I'm joined by Matthew Pollard, founder of Artrex. How are you doing, sir? I am very well. Thank you for having me. Oh, man. Yeah. What is this? It's, it, <laughs> it's to represent alchemy and the magic of financial markets. Clearly, we have chemistry already. Um, and of course, um, returning uh, once more to Blockchain Insider is Sandra Rode, the CEO of the Global Blockchain Business Council. How are you doing, Sandra? Very well, thank you for having me. Uh, how could I not? I mean, absolute superstar. And of course, last but not least, we're joined by Lasse Mihom, who's head of blockchain and DLT strategy at DNB. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. Thank you for joining us as well. All right, so uh, before we get into it, for those of you who don't know who we are, we are Blockchain Insider, the weekly podcast dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets cryptography and uh, cryptography meets the changing world of finance, tech, and consumer products. Brought to you by 11FS, we're a challenger consultancy working to shape the next generation of financial services, and you can find out more at 11FS. All right, so did anybody notice the title of the show today is a bit wordy? We've got a lot to get through. We're going to cover centralization versus decentralized. Big topic in its own right. And we're going to cover securities versus utility tokens and the future of programmable money. Like, you could do a conference about each of those. So we're going to try and keep it high level. Um, so I think uh, there's a lot of questions to get through here. Um, but in a world where financial systems are, uh, you know, tech and governance issues are all uh, sort of riddled with inefficiency because we've inherited a world that came from paper. Uh, we've inherited a world that's been digitized rather than been built digitally native. Uh, there's huge opportunity. So could decentralization help us with some of this stuff? And why might it help with some of this stuff? So um, let's, let's pick up. Um, Sandra, I'm going to look to you first. Um, you've, you've obviously had to deal with quite a lot of CEOs. You've had to unpick some of these topics. Where do you start with a question like, what makes something decentralized? And, and it, where's the value in something like that? So first of all, when I think people in the crypto space use the word decentralization, I think it scares a lot of people actually yeah. in the corporate space. And actually the better word I would use is distributed. What we are actually talking about is taking the same sort of set of responsibilities or processes and then distributing them across a network. The reality is we still have centralization within those networks. Right, and that's a really key point. People see it as this kind of black or white thing, right? Yes. So, and it's really not. You've got a spectrum here of centralization and decentralization. And the banking network's already decentralized. Like DNB is not the same bank as all of its competitors, is it? There are many no. other banks in Norway and around the world. Absolutely. And, but there are inefficiencies with the way the model is today. Can you describe some of the efficient, uh, inefficiencies? Well, actually, banking is uh, kind of is centralized, but it's decentralized. It's kind of network or centralized system. Uh, if you go to, to, to payment, for example, you have one centralized system sending to another centralized system, and then you have a central bank in, the, in between, and you have a number of centralized systems. So there's no one central bank to rule them all. Uh, <laughs> and actually, so it was, uh, it was a guy I used to work with at Barclays that once said the most efficient bank in the world would be the one central bank to rule them all, but it would also have the highest systemic risk of any entity that ever existed. Are so you talking about 
Facebook? Uh, yeah, yeah, or, yeah, or, or, or uh, some, somebody, yeah, some okay. Chinese state bank, bank thing or something. Who knows? Um, but so, uh, Matthew, you come from a uh, financial services background, pension fund background. I do. Talk to me about some of the pain uh, that the, the, the traditional paper-based world w was causing. In, you know, in, because I think there is this sort of, it's not really centralized, is it? Oh, yeah, we, uh, so I worked on the buy side for 10 years and the, the way markets are built at the moment has kind of organically grown over 50 years plus more and the number of counterparties that you face off against when you trade, when it clears, when it settles, when it's held in a central book and record. It's, it's like it takes 14 people to get anything done. You know, it works, but we can do better. Yeah. So really though, is this about cutting out the middleman? Is that the story here? Or is it about um, how do I get lots of different organizations to follow the same workflow? Because if you look at any sort of uh, trade life cycle, there are a series of events that we all have to do. Yeah. And then we all have to send each other an email with a spreadsheet <laughs> attached saying, and, we did that thing. Now and, can you do yeah. your thing, please? And, and having worked on the non-investment side of the buy side, having done operations, risk, compliance, finance, the amount of time and resource and the number of people that are involved reconciling different bits of data mm. across single events like that is, uh, is insane when you look at it objectively. Can I get a so, whoop if you hate reconciliation? <laughs> 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 All right, yeah. nobody hates reconciliation. Yeah, you guys on, clearly love that. Reconciliation. <laughs> there we go. Tina so hates reconciliation. If, if we but, can move to a, to, towards a world where there is a an immutable ledger that all of these different parts of the chain can look at and trust and go, you know Ooh. what, that's what it is. Buzzwords, can, can I pull up immutable ledger, different oh. parts of chains? I'm yeah. gonna have to keep, pick you up on those. Are we, are we playing bingo? We are, <laughs> like you can, the buzzword bingo, we can take those two off. Uh, mutable yeah. ledger, go. Yeah, well, <laughs> now what have I set myself up for? Um, so I, Archax is, is a soon to be regulated exchange in London that'll be listing instruments that are powered by distributed ledger technology. The reason all that is exciting is the opportunity to disrupt traditional financial workflows because if there is a, if there is a, a distributed slash decentralized immutable ledger source of truth, that will bring um, lots of efficiencies to lots of different workflows across lots of different parts of finance, and I find that extremely exciting. Sandra, can you give me a feel for the size of the prize here? Um, is, you know, when we're talking about efficiencies, what, what, what are some of the costs and what are some of the benefits of sorting this stuff out? Because, I mean, you've worked at CME, you've seen attempts at centralization and some of the challenges with financial market infrastructures solving a problem, but not the, the problem. So one of the challenges that, we ha that the industry has in financial services is the chicken and egg scenario, which is if you yourself try to do DLT by yourself, it's not the mm. efficiency play you're going to want. <laughs> what actually is critical is how many players in your network can you get to participate in the utility network or network, whatever it is, permissioned or non-permissioned. The challenge there is can you get all the players that you need to play with you mm. and then share that information mm. with the same set of rules that you yeah. all agree. It's like the story that's of the three bears, right? It's going to be not too little, not too many. It's going to be just the right amount. Because I think if you were to try to get everybody to do everything, you'd never solve the problem. Mm. Yeah. If it's too few people doing too few things, yes. you don't solve the problem. So how do you find enough partners to do a thing with whereby you get enough adoption yeah. to make something? And I'll give you one example that we had. We had a shared market infrastructure project where the back end, we were gonna share a, a specific piece of data. 
that is post-trade related that was gonna bring all kinds of amazing efficiencies. We spent, everyone understood the problem, everyone understood what the solution should be. We spent greater part of I think three to four months on IP clauses. And this is the problem <laughs> when you bring that 12 banks, exchanges, <laughs> clearinghouses, asset managers together because people have this mindset of like, I've got to own the IP or who owns the IP? And it's, it's, it's a challenge. But I think there's a, there's a reality to these, some of these challenges that, Lasse, that, that are difficult to, to get things done. So the promise of DLT is understood, but how do you think about you know, just actually getting shit done in this yeah. space? Because like, if you're going to release some of the value, we've been talking about DLT for five years. Mm -hmm. when, are we getting to the value anytime soon? Yeah, well, we're moving, but I think it's a little bit back to your last question, because I think it's, you have to go down to the, to the, to the core here. Mm. We, we need to be able to pay in seconds from bank to bank or account to account and cross-border. And if you can use either distributed or something else, mm. that's the point. We have to do it faster, cheaper, cheaper. for our customer. But, but isn't the problem, so cross-border payments is one of my favorites. One of the problems with that is, you know, Swift will tell you, and, and some, I've seen some of the folks from Swift around, they'll go, oh, but you can send a Swift message in real time. Hmm. But the problem isn't the Swift message, it's who receives the Swift message, and what's all the process that they have to do internally, hmm. yeah. and, why, and that's different to another bank who has a different process internally. Hmm. Wouldn't it be great if there would be a way we could coordinate those two processes? Absolutely. And actually, that's where DLT helps us Absolutely. in terms of everything that happens below the glass. Absolutely. I always think of a swift message as being like sending you an email. Mm. If I send you an email, it doesn't mean you've read the attached spreadsheet and figured out what to do with it. Mm. So like, it's what if we could have those spreadsheets talk to each other and, and kind of manage everything from there Absolutely. inside of our organization? Absolutely, because today you go from bottom and then you go up and then you go down if you can just cross them. That, that's another. Yes, that's a really interesting way to think about it. Uh, all right, so I'm going to move us to the next topic because um, centralized versus decentralized, I think to summarize briefly, uh, that's a, a false dichotomy. What we really have is a spectrum and banking was already decentralized and distributed. Mm. So actually the real question becomes, how do we use this technology mm. to organize inter-organizational workflows to create greater efficiencies? And how can things like tokens maybe help us do that? Which brings us on to the next topic, which is mm -hmm. utilities versus securities. Before I dive into utilities versus securities, which is a bit of a, a subject in its own right, let's get into what's a token. Again, Sandra, I'm gonna lean on you as my, my definitions person because you, you find yourself doing this so often. Um, what's the difference between a token and a traditional accounting entry? Because um, you know, banks have for many years had run their own databases and in those databases they've kept account balances and, mm. and kind of sunk, synced those account balances with other banks. A token's a different thing? So, yeah, I think what <laughs> has scared lots of people in the industry is some of the verbiage that we've decided to use as a tech group. This is what happens when you get a bunch of geeks coming up with terminology. <laughs> it's just not fit for purpose in many ways. So token, the way I see it is, and the way I kind of bring this down to kind of layman terms is, think about a token in the form of like, there are loyalty points. Exactly. You get loyalty points, you get airline mm. miles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's actually the similar same thing in the sense that it's worth something inside of a network, yeah. right? And it, it, you can buy stuff potentially or you can exchange it, barter it for something else in that network. 
And in the form of tokens, the way we see it here is it actually has several different attributes. It could have value. It could actually just be a common placeholder that everyone agrees has a certain settlement or value um, uh, that everyone agrees to or has a certain set of rules that everyone agrees to. But the token itself can be defined as a digital medium and it has its own kind of rules and attributes and characteristics depending on what the network decides to attribute yeah. to that. And so um, it sounds very general, but my view is it's, it's no different than what loyalty points and air miles are today. How are you, Matthew? I agree, and uh, to your point a moment ago about uh, we don't do ourselves any favor in the space, utility coins and the, and the value that people have created legitimately or illegitimately by um, providing discounts or utility or introducing other levers to create a network effect to make these things more valuable has been a massive um, growth factor in the space, but also uh, there have also been some horror stories. But I completely agree with you. I view a utility coin like uh, airline miles, just a more uh, advanced implementation of it. How about yourself, Lasse? Would you, what, how do you define tokens when you're explaining it internally? Well, that's another thing with token. And, and it's a little bit into what we do as a bank. Because if you have a token, you have the token stored in your wallet. Mm. Which means you do not need a custodian, you do not need a centralized uh, depository. Yeah. So the whole mechanism of trading token is completely different from... Well, well, that's the thing. If you go back to the first token that really gained popularity, it would be Bitcoin. Mm. And Bitcoin could be held in your wallet on your device. You didn't have to have a Coinbase account. You didn't have to have an account with your bank. You could actually hold it as if it was cash in your pocket on a device. And that creates a, a different kind of... Now, the reality was most people didn't want to work that way and they yeah. opened, you know, <laughs> somebody else custodied Bitcoin for them, which is, which is fine. But, the, you know, that original idea that you could be your own bank is mm. quite interesting. Mm. When you look at the buy side, Matthew, like the idea of being your own bank and managing your own tokens without custodians, is that desirable or no, is that... not in any way. <laughs> uh, so I used to work for... Uh, $1.4 billion asset manager, and if we were to raise money from investors, deploy it into a fund, and the fund was to custody its own positions, not only is that terrifying, it's also against the law. Ah, <laughs> so, let's, let's not break laws, people. Yeah, so no, I don't think uh, institutional asset managers want to be their own bank. I don't think that's gonna change anytime soon. Far too much liability, far too much risk. So there's this term here, let's get into the actual topic itself now. Now we've got a view is that tokens are this thing that represents a value that can be traded inside a network that can move with greater efficiency than trying to get banks to update their ledgers inside this network. One way to think of it might be PayPal. I take my dollars, I, uh, in return for my dollars, I've got these PayPal credits that I can move around the PayPal network and then somebody pulls them out of PayPal at the other side, yeah. that but open source. Yeah. or somehow distributed amongst a bunch of actors, which you can see JPM coin potentially doing, and you can see uh, utility settlement coin, and many other efforts at doing similar, similar sort of stable coins and, and things of that nature. This word securities gets thrown around. Uh, Matthew, as, as the guy who, with, the, with that background from securities, I always think about just debt and equity being yeah. the, the two main types. De debt and equity, where would, where would I in day-to-day -day, um, reality bump into debt and equity and, and how would the capital markets think about this? So, you know, I view it quite broadly that uh, when people talk about securities and security tokens, it's any, any regulated instrument that is a unit of, of account that has legally enforceable uh, rights to an underlying asset, to a real-world asset. So shares, debt, bonds, 
just anything in the traditional financial architecture uh, it can be and is being uh, originated and put and, and existing on distributed ledger technology. And what would be some of the benefits of that, uh, Sandra, is in terms of creating and issuing an asset that, that traditionally was something that I would done entirely in paper, mm. um, like a security? You know, what, people throw around words like fractionalization and, and, uh, and things like that. Like, sure. what, what are the things that are better than, than doing it the old-fashioned way? So I don't think people understand how... Um, stock markets and exchanges and uh, record keeping um, can really go awry. Um, I think some of you have heard of the Dole Corporation yeah, yeah. issue, where it turned out that there were more people that said that they owned Dole Corporation shares than were actually issued, <laughs> and that somehow over the years, with all the stock splits and whatnot, um, the records had just gone completely Somebody just out of whack. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, okay, well, how do you deal with that? Well, guess what? You end up going to court. Um, that's a problem. So at a very baseline level, the industry does not do the best job of keeping records, especially when you do have lots of uh, long, uh, you have lots of complexity that eventually happen like stock splits or dividends and all these other things that need to say. So I think from a um, record keeping standpoint, DLT can help with that. When we talk about digitizing things and then moving them around in a digital network, um, People talk about it becomes frictionless, it becomes more cost-effective. I, I agree with that. I, I don't know the argument about making it more liquid. Here's the thing. Yeah, I agree. Unless people make, unless people trade stuff, yeah. you're not going to just make it more liquid just yeah. by automatically yeah. turning it into a digital token. People talk about real estate all the time, yeah, yeah. and they're like, we're going to digitize this commercial building, yeah. and we're going to tokenize it, and then fractionalize it, and then all of a sudden it's going to be liquid. And I'm sitting there going, do yeah. you have market makers? Are exactly. Are going to buy it? Makers, takers? And not enough people think about the distribution and the market making required to bring true liquidity to the instrument, regardless of the underlying asset, the instrument that's been yeah. listed on a I'm going to call exchange. it, that was amazing, but also translate it for the people that aren't from a financial markets background. Because real estate yeah. has always been a market that had been considered less liquid. Yeah. Real estate had been a market that had been, uh, you know, you're dealing with buildings. Mm. So a fraction of a building is hard to sell. Yeah. Um, a fraction of a, of a shopping center is, is hard to sell. And once I've bought into that, I'm pretty much with it until uh, somebody sells it at the other end. So yes. I can't just sell a little piece or own a little piece and then sell my my ownership stake in that as easily as I would stocks and shares. Yeah. So I can see why the desire is there, but just talk to me about what some of the problems, you know, in, in layman's terms, about trying to trying to do some of the things from a liquidity standpoint. Mm. So lots of the assets that are being tokenized during this first wave are illiquid underlying assets like real estate, like VC funds, like venture capital funds, like private equity funds. Um, assets where people have an interest in, in participating in them, but perhaps not necessarily being locked up for five, six, seven years. So what people are doing is putting these assets in SPVs or equivalent, and rather than issuing shares, the ownership is re represented through tokens, through the creation of tokens on a distributed ledger. That's the, that's the primary event. These tokens are created during the issuance event, but then for them to trade on a secondary market, it has to be a regulated market. And in traditional finance, proper regulated markets 
to show the regulator that there's orderly price discovery and it's yeah. true and fair and transparent and to think about all those points about market surveillance. It's we almost like a, they've got to follow, follow the rules and obey the laws. Damn exactly. it. That's so annoying. How and about so, that? And so market makers and a consideration around liquidity and who's going to provide both sides of the market so it's a fair place for people to buy and sell the thing, whatever it may be. So a that, that's place. a real challenge in the yeah, space. No, I think it's an interesting challenge because of some of the stuff you see in crypto. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm interested, uh, lastly, from, from your perspective, uh, have you looked at some of those other use cases outside of the world of securities in, and outside of the you know, uh, listed market insurance, as we call them, that, that have been dematerialized? Yeah, well, yeah, I've been looking at, uh, and back to property or, or real estate, uh, I mean, one, one advantage of tokenized Mm -hmm. The value is that you can uh, invest uh, as a small investor, correct? Because you can fractional the the, the token, so the whole mechanism is is um, different. But we have been looking into definitely uh, something outside of which, which I think is a powerful signal, right? So that that there is real interest here from financial services companies to be like, hang on, we we already deal with real estate, and if anybody's ever dealt with real estate. I don't think there are many countries in the world where that's a pleasant experience. Like it's paper-based, it's burdensome, it's everybody who works in it hates the paperwork. Hmm. Uh, so to be able to make that slicker and yeah. to be able to create a, a broader pool of investors is a good thing. Absolutely. But I think what I'm hearing from, from Sanjay and Matthew is that's also really hard to do because regulation, because fairness, because all of the things that, that sort of come with that. Could I ask, because we have a project with another bank in Norway doing uh, buying and selling on flat and property. Mm. Uh, if you try to use a smart contract to completely streamline and, and robotize the whole process, in the end you have to pay. A token is much better, much easier to yeah. handle than fiat money. So I think, Interesting, yeah. just to kind of uh, summarize where we are with tokens, I always think about a token as being the digital equivalent of this glass of water. If I hand it to Sandra, Sandra now has the glass of water and I no longer do. Mm. If I have the glass of water, I have this glass of water and Sandra no longer does. Everybody can see that that fact is true. Mm. This is not the same when we were dealing with the Dole Corporation issue, mm. where everybody had a copy of what they thought the truth was, but there was no golden record of what the truth was. And, in, and the golden source of truth would be absolutely phenomenal if we could get to something like that. Mm. Um, so that's the securities and the alternatives. But there's always this word utility tokens. Mm. This one comes up, and this is a word that created some controversy, Sandra. Is it worth sort of um, explaining why there might have been some controversy around the, the idea of a utility token? So, you know, in, in the purest form, a utility token should one um, not be tradable probably in a secondary market. Um, you should not care <laughs> if it has a price or not because that's not the purpose of a utility token. But what the problem, I think, where utility has gotten tainted is the fact that people were trying to call things utility tokens to circumvent yeah. the fact that they were actually capital raising, mm -hmm. and effectively it was uh, it has value, right? Yeah. And they wanted to trade actually on the secondary market. Yeah. Can I play devil's advocate briefly? Yeah. Could you argue that what they were doing was the same as Tesla um, using the deposits on future Tesla cars <laughs> to build Teslas? <laughs> You would argue. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it's a, okay. Um, then yeah. uh, then we're, we're not just going to push back on that one. We're just going to roll at it. That's fair enough. Um, all right. So listen, um, I think the, the token space is obviously a lot bigger than securities versus Absolutely, utilities. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and actually, uh, tokenization of real world assets is an area that I think a lot of financial services companies are finding very, very interesting at the moment. And it feels like there's real activity there. Definitely. And this is the story that nobody's telling. Mm. Everybody's looking at DLT and, uh, and, and everybody's looking at the old blockchain, but that story's two years old. Mm. What's happened beneath the surface is, is I think a lot more interesting. So if you've not looked at tokens in a while, go back and look at them, I think. Um, now we come to our final topic, uh, which is the future of programmable money. My mm. goodness. Um, it might be uh, a good idea before we get into the future of um, programmable money. And we're going to do an audience survey, um, but we're not going to do Slido for this. Um, we're going to ask you some of the things that may or not, may or not have been used as money in the past. Okay, so it's just going to be um, shouting out, using your voice, old-fashioned. We Analog. like to keep it low-tech. Because when you're using Slido, people can't hear that on the podcast quite so well. Um, so I want you to shout, real, real. Or oh, fake. fake, fake, based on each of the things I see. So the first thing we have is salt. Real? Real. Real. Fault? Uh, fake? Wow, okay, this is a small audience. Yes, salt well was in fact uh, the primary currency in East Africa in the Middle Ages. Um, and the English word salary derives from the Latin salarium, meaning money to buy salt. <laughs> Which is a nice fun fact. Um, okay, squirrel skins, real? Real. Ooh, a few people there. Uh, fake? Okay, wow, not, not, that was about 50-50. Uh, squirrel skins were in fact real. Um, so not only was this real back in the day when Russian, tr Russians traded squirrel pelts and used their claws <laughs> of their noses for change, which is weird in itself, uh, but we also read this is still formally recognized in Finland today. Okay, I don't know. Uh, I mean, Norway's a different country, I yeah. grant you, but they're your neighbor, so you can take responsibility. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, valued at three cents each. Okay, um, next up we have Parmesan cheese. Real? Real. Fake. Hey. Wow, okay, this is the controversial one. Parmesan cheese was, in fact, real money. Um, this was, for a time, accepted as bank collateral in Italy. <laughs> I, just, I might just leave that there. Um, apparently, during the Great Fire of London in 1666, um, Samuel Pepys buried a lump of Parmesan in his garden where he, <laughs> when he evacuated his house uh, as one of his most valuable possessions in the hope it would survive the fire. Wow. Alrighty. Um, and did it survive? We don't have that fact. <laughs> oh, producer Petrit is right there. You can blame Petrit for that. Okay. Um, shout out producer Petrit. I found it. Uh, uh, all right. Uh, next one. Real or fake? Bitcoin. Real. 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 <laughs> Anybody for fake? Fake. Okay, there's a few people there in the background. Uh, uh, will we ever know? Um, mm. It doesn't necessarily count as, uh, as money in the uh, central bank sense or, or like it, using central bank's tests, but people are certainly using it as a store of value, a unit of account, and a me mechanism of transfer. So uh, it can be used as money. But then so can Parmesan cheese. So, uh, and last but not least, gold dragons. 
Gold dragon. Gold dragon. Fake. Um, that is, in fact, the currency used in Game of Thrones. Oh, uh, <laughs> okay, so um, we've got about five minutes left, and I want to just briefly take everybody through. Uh, what does programmable money mean to you, Sandra? Is there, is there something we can take from that term, or is there a, some question you'd prefer to answer? So <laughs> I will give you a discussion uh, we had with the Australian government a number of months ago, and the topic of programmable money came up as a use case. And the use case that came up was... Could governments use social benefits or taxpayer money that goes out as social benefits mm -hmm. and program that? So it could only be used for rent, food, the things that government, when they're giving you social benefits, want you to use and not on the other stuff, right? right. So that sounds all good and well. But I think we do have an ethical question mark as a society. If we're going to allow this to be programmed and smart um, in the way it's distributed, Where's the line? Yeah. If the government knows every single one of your transactions, mm. um, should they really have access to that? And what can programmable money do in terms of transparency, but also what can it do in terms of that information being used or that data being used in um, mm. nefarious ways? There's a real responsibility and a fine line between real-time tax collection at the point of sale and real-time prevention of fun in a free society. Yeah. Mm. I think that's a fine line to well, follow. How do I follow mm. that? Uh, to me, programmable money means, and I think we're moving in a direction towards this in capital markets, a more frictionless way for companies to participate in capital formation. And then when those shares and debt exist in the real world, things like voting, dividends, corporate governance, distribution of dividends are all made quicker, easier, cheaper because it's powered by distributed ledger technology. I want to live in a world where I'm a shareholder of a company like Tesla and they can pay me a dividend every day and it's very easy for them to do that because Tesla shares are represented and powered by distributed ledger technology. So bringing in programmability in the capital markets is very exciting to me. Uh, how about yourself, Lasse? No, I agree. And uh, it's a little bit back to the, the uh, smart contract because let's say I sell my car to you uh, and then uh, uh, 10,000, for example. And then I program my money and say, okay, you can have those, uh, I can have those uh, 10,000, but just if someone, third party, uh, verify that the mm. car is okay. Mm. Yeah. So you can kind of uh, you program. Can, if this, then that sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. yeah. I, I always like that, like, yeah, what trades could I do? Because this is already happening in financial markets, which is if the price of index or oil or what underlying uh, asset moves up or down, mm. then I have margin calls. So <laughs> I have money moving from bank A to bank B in theory. Yes. Uh, so that happens all the time, but you have somebody watching the price, looking at a contract, programming a transaction. Mm. That is a manual effort yeah, with sure. lots that can go mm. wrong, lots of risk, lots mm. of people doing things wrong. Yeah. Automating that across organizations would bring down the cost of financial services, uh, yes. which in turn would release efficiencies for you, the consumer, and, and increase GDP, uh, which could be hugely powerful. And you don't do it in the application, you do it in the transaction. That's a quite different way of thinking. Mm. Uh, yes, wow. Uh, you don't do it in the application, you do it in the transaction. All right, so we just have time for one question from the audience. Um, and I think the, uh, the one at the top is, when will DLT have sufficient processing speed to handle thousands, if not millions, of transactions per second? This is one of my favorites. Who well, I know to? Sandra can answer this, but I can give it a go and you can correct me. Yeah? Mm -hmm. So I think in its first incarnation, 
secondary markets, the way the regulators will want to see them, when trades happen on regulated secondary markets, they're not going to be pinging the blockchain every single time a trade happens. That's just not how they're built at the moment. Trades will happen in an omnibus and then we'll get to the end of, end of an arbitrary period and blockchain activity will be cleared up at the end. So I understand the question, but I don't think it's a question that, that actually regulators will want to approve secondary markets where there is no, there's no central limit order book, there's no, there's no kind of central place, and these trades are affected on, on yeah. the DLT and the smart contract straight away. I just don't think The assumption in the question yet. is that you're assuming you're getting rid of fast centralized technologies, yeah. and you're saying, we're not getting rid of the fast bit, this is replacing the slow bit. Yeah, exactly. We have signed with IOTA. IOTA is a kind of internet mm -hmm. thing, uh, type of transaction. We don't know if it will work or not, but this is the internet of thing area. Mm -hmm. I mean, millions of transactions per second uh, already happening. So already, that, yeah. that's, that's another good point. Not all DLTs are created equal. The fact that Bitcoin does seven transactions a second doesn't mean there aren't DLT type technologies out there that can do millions of transactions a second already today. So that's happening. Uh, I think that's another key point. Yeah, I mean, let's break down a couple of different things here in that question. One is there, is, there are actually DLTs or um, you know, different blockchains that actually can go quite, uh, can actually do those transaction throughputs at millions. Um, or at least hundreds of thousands. Especially the um, private ones, right? Especially the private ones. But here's the thing. How many systems do we need out there that actually are the speed of MasterCard or Visa processing? Yeah. Uh, there are just very few use cases, actually. Mm -hmm. And so what I don't understand is people's obsession about why mm -hmm. you need to have that kind of throughput. Because in my, in my view, there are select use cases where that makes sense. Micropayments, payments where there's high transaction uh, volume. But the reality is, in most use cases we're talking about, and it's an efficiency play, um, you don't necessarily need that. What you do need is security, mm. integrity, and privacy and confidentiality. And there's a whole bunch of other things that are actually higher up in the prioritization of what business needs are. So it depends what your goal is. If your yeah. goal is security, then something that's slow is less of an issue. Mm. If your goal is speed, then don't use DLT necessarily. And also, if your goal is speed, you don't have to throw away the fast thing. You can actually add the security of DLT yes. to that faster thing. Yes. So I think, unfortunately, it's one of those things where people have seen it as DLT or centralized, whereas actually it's DLT and centralized, yes. and that's the best of all worlds. Well, listen, um, that concludes um, our blockchain in Insider Live. So audience, you've been phenomenal. Give yourselves a cheer. Thank you so much. Uh, massive thank you to our wonderful guests. Of course, uh, where can people find out more about you, uh, Lassie? DNB is a large bank in, in Norway. But... Yeah, yeah. People may have heard of you. Um, what about you, Matthew? What about Artrax? Uh, so our website is www.archax.com. Uh, please go and check out and see, see what we're building. And if anybody's got any questions, I'll, I'll, I'll be standing at the side. Brilliant. And uh, yourself, Sandra? Anyone who's on Twitter, I'm a SRO London. And then for the website, it's gbbcouncil.org. GBBCouncil.org, do check it out. And you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter or email me directly um, if you don't get to catch me today, uh, simon at 11fs.com. Um, and if you want anybody to help you out with this blockchain and DLT space, do keep us in mind. Also remember, 11fs is hiring, so careers at 11fs.com is the email you need if you like the, the cut of our jib. Uh, we need great people. Um, of course, audience, thank you so much for being here. And don't forget to subscribe to Blockchain Insider wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's iTunes or Spotify. 
and follow us on social media at BeChain Insider to find more exclusive content. Uh, please leave us a review on iTunes if you get chance. Uh, thank you very much for listening if you're listening at home uh, or on your commute or wherever you are. And thank you to the audience. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Right. Well done.